0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Dave's Pick is back, and uh, we've got a very special guest on. And before I introduce our two guests, actually, um, I want to remind everybody, if you're a veteran and you've started a business within the last 12 months or are about to start a business, drop GM. At America's Web Radio, an email. Tell us about the business and about you, and uh, we will give you two free weeks of advertising for your business. Just GM at America's Web Radio, and thank you for your service. With that being said, the two gentlemen that are here, Mr. Bob Moore and Mr. Bruce Cowie, and uh, Bruce is really the star of the show today. Bruce is. Uh, on the uh, right of your screen and uh, bob is the other other uh, air force uh jet jock on the left of the screen but uh we want to thank both of them for their service and it goes back to my era uh when it was uh, back to to vietnam and we all we all certainly know about vietnam and um bruce is taking it on to uh Write about it, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And what he did, like many pilots did. And by the way, we do. I gotta. I always have to take this in, uh, and throw it out when I can. But uh, we do have a little bit in common. I was in the army, and uh, obviously, Bruce and Bob were both in the Air Force, and my son's in the Air Force, and uh, I'm very proud of him. And um, he went to some little dumpy school in texas called texas a and m i graduated from texas tech so we had a little problem there while he was in school but he went on from the corps and uh went into the air force and uh, is uh stationed overseas now and uh doing quite well and and loving uh, i think he'll career it uh, which it, it ain't bad today it ain't like it used to be but uh, anyway, so I do have a little little in common with uh, Bob and Bruce. So, with that being said, um, welcome to America's Web Radio. And uh, Bob and I met each other at a at a uh, little watering hole not too far from us, and uh, we got to talking. And then he called and and told me your story, Bruce. And uh, um, you decided to write books after. Uh, how long did it take you to decide to do this?
2: Well, it was a project that uh, I had in mind almost the whole time I worked for uh, the airline, and I was—I I served in Vietnam from uh, May of '68 to May of '69, and
1: could you have picked a hotter time? Uh,
2: uh, Probably not. But uh, <laughs> when when I when I came home, I, I completed my uh, commitment to the Air Force, and then I had the good fortune to be hired as a pilot by Western Airlines in uh, December of '72. And my class, uh, there were 30 new pilots in my class. 28 of us were were military, and most of those Vietnam veterans and. I know the History Channel didn't exist at that time, but I always felt like I was live at the History Channel talking to these guys. Um, most of them were reluctant to talk about Vietnam, but over time, I, I got to know these fellows that I worked with, and and they would tell me stories. And I, as an old history buff, I always felt that there must be some way to preserve some of this history, and that was kind of the genesis of the book project.
1: So you just you just bounced on a word that. Um I love history as well, and uh, maybe you can explain this to me. I'm, I'm not very sharp. I'm not the brightest bulb <laughs> in the box. Uh, how do you rewrite history?
2: Well, I, I, I think it's uh, done on a pretty regular basis because people, uh, you know, what, what I look at these books as uh, they're, they're an oral history, and the first book has 37 chapters. And each one of them is written by a a fellow that I knew at the airline who served in Vietnam. And oral history is the best kind of history written by the people who experienced it. And rewriting history, I guess, is a full-time job for other people, but uh, (laughs) it it wasn't a part of my book.
1: (laughs) I, I always thought history was history, like what we're doing right now. Uh, you know, in my mind, it'd be great if you all were five foot three, beautiful blondes, but you're not, and I can't change that. And <laughs> poor Bob over there, and just like some hair, but um, you know, I, and it's going to go down, and it's recorded, and the video's recorded, and. I'm not going to be able to change it. I can't rewrite what you all say today. And uh, this is that when people say they're going to rewrite history or it's being done, and we know that it is being done and has been done, um, it just, it's like fingernails on the blackboard, and the three of us can remember blackboards. I don't even think they make them anymore. But um, so did you have this thought at all in Vietnam that you wanted to start writing when you got out?
2: Um, I... I've always, like I said, I, I grew up in a real patriotic time. Of all things, I was I was born in Berkeley, California, and Berkeley in the nineteen fifties, when I was growing up, was a very patriotic place. And I was surrounded by neighbors who had were World War Two veterans, and I used to listen to stories. If I could get these old guys to talk, I'd mow lawns and deliver newspapers and all that stuff. And and I. I uh, I just always had a, an appreciation for the history and and the fact that these fellows had had experienced something unique. Well, when I was in Vietnam, I, I had this thought that even though I was only 23 years old, I thought uh, you know I'm I'm a part of something that's important and I need to remember this. And I I didn't keep a diary, but I wrote home a lot, and that was kind of my diary because my dad saved all my letters, and I have. Uh, I have a box with about uh, 150 letters that uh, that I wrote when I was in Vietnam. So I saved a lot of things, but I think it was going to work and being around these guys um, at work. I, I flew with pilots who had served with every service, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps. They would flown almost every airplane that uh, had flown in the Vietnam Air War, and... They had the whole story right there. It was just a matter of if I could get them to talk and and get them to put something in writing. And that's basically what the books are. They're stories from these fellows that uh, flew the missions and flew the airplanes and and were there. And uh, it's it's a fascinating piece of history, I think.
1: You know, I don't know if – should I call you Dr. Bruce, by the way? (laughs) No, and I'm serious, because if you did something that many professional – psychiatrists and psychologists needed to do but couldn't do and god knows how many lives you may have saved by getting them to talk and the best thing that could happen to a vet or a vietnam veteran anyway or even today's veterans is to get them to talk about it get it off their chest and you know and i know um, probably even including korea the dastardly things that happened in Vietnam uh you know I wasn't there but I've had many 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 friends tell me of you know some of the the things that you you know just unbelievable with the troops that uh, were captured by the Vietnamese and as Walter was Cronkite was counting bags he wasn't telling the whole story of what was actually happening and uh you know, and I think doing a book or doing the books like you've done from your perspective is not only helping those pilots, but uh, will
3: ultimately help all of us. You know, David, it's interesting uh, when Bruce started this project; uh, he didn't anticipate more than one volume, and and he had trouble at the beginning getting fellow pilots to tell their stories. And uh, it was sometimes like pulling teeth trying to get him to tell it. But anyway, he was able to produce enough stories for the first volume. But apparently when that first volume was published and other pilots saw that, they realized, maybe I do need to tell my story to memorialize my history for my family. And so now he has three volumes that are published, and one, he's got enough stories for the fourth volume. Bruce, do you,
1: you know, you were at, um, well, tell us what you did and and, and what you were flying and uh, sort of describe it for folks that don't know what you're talking about.
2: Well, when I went through uh, flight school, um, Air Force pilot training, all the training was uh, pretty much in jets except for the very beginning. The T-38? The T-37, the the T-38. Then we got our wings and got our assignments, and I get assigned to fly a, a propeller airplane, <laughs> you know, which uh, <laughs> I'd never, never really fly. It was a two-engine uh, prop plane, that the C-7 Caraboo.
1: Okay, similar to a Bonanza? or.
2: Well, it was larger. It was, it, it, it's a fairly good size airplane, uh, 20, I think 28,000 pounds, something mm. like that. And... Uh, it was an Army mission. We flew for the um, Army 5th Special Forces and basically flew in and out of all the Special Forces camps, which were located on the border uh, Vietnam and Cambodia and the Vietnam Laos up further north. And we delivered uh, whatever they needed, cargo, ammunition, supplies, troops, um, and, and most of those fields had... Short dirt strips, thousand uh, feet or so, maybe fifteen hundred feet long. I
1: and bet you knew where the brakes were.
2: <laughs> we, we, we certainly did, and there were usually a minefield off the end of the runway, so it was an in, incentive not to uh, not to go off the end of the runway. But uh, most of the strips were outside the perimeter of the camp, so they were not not secure at all, and it was uh, it, 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 most of the time it was pretty. Um, the flying was. Pretty routine, but it was exciting on occasion, and and we never flew at night. It was all daytime because the uh, at night they didn't have lights on the fields. Uh, they were it was all it was all daytime flying and all visual. We didn't ha- never filed a flight plan or anything like that. It was just all strictly mm-hmm. flying visual and uh, learned a lot. I I really learned how to fly in that year, so it was a it was quite an experience.
1: I've thought, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I was general aviation for a very little while, but have you ever thought about what a plane has today with the GPS and all the rest of the electronics that it has compared to what you were flying or or uh-huh. how that would have changed anything?
2: It would have changed everything. We, we got lost a lot. It, you know, everything was pretty much... Uh,
1: seat of the pants?
2: Seat, a lot of seat of the pants. Uh, there were a few... Uh, Navigation aids, uh, if you're familiar with the TACAN and that sort of thing, uh, tactical air navigation where you would fly outbound from a, ba- a certain place on a radial and then go out a certain distance, but they were pretty weak stations, and uh, we'd end up uh, looking for a place, and uh, the navigation system would, as they said, break lock, and we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have a, a good beacon to fly. So we, we've really... Had to find places visually, and after you knew what the landmarks were, you could, if you'd been there a few months, you could find the places. And uh, it was a, uh, it was very interesting. It was uh, exciting flying, and
1: uh, <laughs> I bet it was. Yeah, you know,
2: but uh, you know, it just.
1: Uh, Did I, you I, ever feel like a clay pigeon in a in a skeet shoot? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I think we probably got shot at more than we knew. Um, you know, unless you got hit, you didn't know you're being shot at for the most part. But it, it was. Uh, you know we had a couple of exciting missions where uh, we went into camps that were under attack and uh, they they made airdrops we, we made airdrops at night at one at one base and there was a group that I wasn't involved with that made a, a, a famous airdrop that saved a special Forces camp that was under siege so it was all um, it was all uh, you know when you're 20 some years old and you're're you're bulletproof and uh, yeah. you know you you uh, that's what you need is uh people that age to be doing that stuff, I
1: think <laughs> <laughs> until you went into one of the bars, you were bullet profile. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But not that you ever did anything like no. that, no, of course. But um, we're going to have to take a break. Uh, you're listening to Dave's Pick on America's Web Radio, and we've got two gentlemen here that, in my my view, are our heroes. Uh, we've got Bruce Cowie. Am I saying that right? It's Cowie. Cowie, I'm but sorry. He gets
2: mispronounced a lot, so
1: I'm Cowie. sorry. That's all right. And if he makes me get up and salute, well, anyway. <laughs> And at least I don't mess up your name, Bob, since we have well, Wait. we don't have the same name, but we might be relatives I somewhere promise. down the Mr. Bob Moore. And we appreciate both of you coming in. And we'll be back on America's Web Radio right after this. Get your pen and paper ready. If there is a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is around town movers. Timothy and the guys Column.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: And we're back on America's Web Radio and David's pick today. And uh, we have uh, two Air Force veterans here. And like I said earlier, uh, I do have an uh, affinity for the Air Force now since my son's in it. And, uh, uh, you know, as a major, he makes a sergeant salute him. I don't, know. I don't know how that works, but uh, when I do get to see him every now and then i do I do pop a salute on him <laughs> but anyway uh, just a little outrinking there but uh, these guys my heroes uh, and and uh, you know you all you were flying close air support, but it was deliver. Packages and supplies to uh, the troops out in the field, and they. Uh, my gosh, the area that you were flying in, bordering Cambodia and Laos, that was that was nasty, nasty air her er area.
2: We uh, went into several places that were right on the border, and for those of you who are familiar, the the Ho Chi Minh Trail um, was the delivery system from north vietnam into the south with a basically a road that ran all the way from north vietnam through laos and down into cambodia and then on into different spots into south vietnam and the fellows at some of these camps would say we can we can hear the truck traffic at night driving down the down the trail wow and they were going across the border doing stuff um monitoring the traffic on the trail and uh, all sorts of uh, sneaky stuff that uh, technically we weren't supposed to be doing or weren't doing but uh, they were the special forces guys were involved in some pretty uh, pretty, dangerous,
1: pretty dangerous things you know today um, the word transparency keeps popping up and you know and this and that and yet I guess, during Vietnam, and even today, um, particularly today, I guess, the general public couldn't handle the facts, I don't think, and particularly in Vietnam. And, uh, uh, you know, some of the things that the ground pounders did, uh, like you said, at night, or the missions that they did, and I don't want to say they were to get even, but at the same token, they did things, the atrocities that the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, and and their agents did to our guys was just horrendous. And I don't know that the public could have handled it. And the at least the terms of engagement were a little bit more relaxed than they are today. And uh, and yet, I don't think the public could have handled much more than. Well, I don't think they could have handled the truth of Vietnam. And today, the terms of engagement. Uh, we have to. That that's why we have contract labor doing a lot of the fighting, and most of the world doesn't know that. They think it's our 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 army, and it's and it's not. But that's again a fact of life. So, when you would go in, uh, what was what were your thoughts?
2: Well, we were we were just, uh, uh, you know, we were just doing. Everybody was doing the same thing. It, it, it was like it wasn't really that big a deal. We were all doing the same thing, and and I think um, as as I look at these fellows I I came to work with at the airline, um, you know. None of us got any kind of a a real welcome home or a a, a parade or anything like that, and and most of these guys came home. When I inscribe a book, I I have something I write, and I always say uh, that these amazing men were all volunteers. They volunteered to serve our country at a very difficult time and came home to an unappreciative and often hostile home front. And it was almost required that they put Vietnam behind them and get on with their lives. And that's what all of these guys did. Some were unable to do that and and have suffered all sorts of problems. But most of the pilots, especially the ones that I worked with, were all able to, at some level, put it away and and move on. And I think one of the goals of this book project was to pay tribute and honor their service because they never really got that. And I have several. Um, you talked about Dr. Bruce being, a, being a, an amateur shrink or whatever. Honestly, I had no idea when I started this of what a, a therapeutic and healing process it was going to be for some of these fellows because a lot of them had never talked to anybody about Vietnam, never. some of them not even to their wives or their kids. And I have a couple of stories like that that are really pretty amazing
1: you know i was just thinking no war is or somebody shooting at you or you shooting someone there's nothing clean about it but we had come out of world war ii and it in many ways people sort of looked at it like it was a clean war we went in and we did this and we did that and we won and hooray for the red white and blue you know and uh then we went into Korea, and I guess we learned more about Korea from MASH than we did from the news. <laughs> and uh, then we went into Vietnam, and if there's ever been a dirty, dirty conflict, it has to be Vietnam. And, uh, but there is no clean war. There is no, you know, what what is it, like the, uh, the romantic the romance of a war? I don't see anything romantic. About getting shot at, uh, but I think that was what people were expecting of Vietnam. And then when some of the stuff came out about what was going on, and then to treat vets like they did, you know, when when you're ordered to wear civvies through the airport, I mean that that's we should have the pride of the uniform and uh, not worry about anybody that spit on you or anything else should be arrested and the keys should be thrown away, or they should be sent immediately to the front, in my opinion.
2: Well, I, I agree with that. I, I think uh, when Bob and I both flew the C-141 after we came back from Vietnam to fulfill the rest of our commitment to the Air Force, and I was based at Travis, which is in northern California, and they had a big sign at the Travis passenger terminal that said, Gateway to the Pacific. And everybody going to Vietnam that went out of Travis walked under that sign and got on an airplane and flew to Vietnam. And when they came back, it was unbelievable. The Army guys would come back on these um, military charter flights uh, and come in in the middle of the night. They'd clear customs and then they'd get a briefing about how they were, it was advised that they not wear their uniforms when they um, were going, most of them went down to the Oakland Army Terminal to out process and separate from the service and they were told, don't wear your uniforms when you go to the airport to go home and there were stories about piles of uniforms in the men's room where guys went to change clothes and put on their civilian clothes and threw their uniforms away. It's a absolutely unbelievable and a lot of stuff that people don't know because it it was never really publicized but it's a very sad statement on on the whole the whole thing it really that's very sad
1: yeah and uh i'm sitting here thinking about what you were saying and and uh how could we do that how could we do that as a country
3: if I may interject uh, a, a brief story that I have regarding that, a um, lot, lot of lots of folks don't know that the, the United States government hired civilian South Vietnamese people to, to work under contract. Part of that was that we in in all around the all around the country in South Vietnam they hired young ladies to do housekeeping housekeeping for the, uh, the every branch of the service, really. And in my case, at Natrang and Tuiwa, uh, I, I had a what we called a mamasan. And they would they would come in, they'd keep our rooms clean, they'd come in and do our laundry. Uh, they would do the laundry actually in the showers by hand, On and they'd put our stuff on the floor and they'd pound it, rinse it out, and wash it. And that's the way they washed it, hung it up, and then they'd iron it. And you'd always, they'd always have it ready for you. And in the process, I got to know my mama san and Rang very well. Although we didn't speak the same language, somehow we were able to communicate. She would, she would have great joy if she, if she knew that I wasn't up early flying. Uh, she would come into my little. Uh, we had four bunks in each room, and she'd come in and wait for me to wake up, and she'd be sitting there down in the Vietnamese squat the way they sit and she would wait until I woke up and rolled over and there she'd be staring at me and she'd laugh and run out of the room you know <laughs> and so I got to know her quite well and her her husband was in the South Vietnamese Army and they had children and my, my thoughts about why we were there was very simple I mean when we went into France on D-Day Uh, we went in there there to save freedom for basically all of Europe to get out from underneath the the vice grip of Hitler. And when I went to Vietnam, I kind of thought that's what we were doing the same thing because all the South Vietnamese people wanted to do was have their freedom just like we have. And so I thought that was a very noble cause. They were trying to keep communism out of their country because they wanted to be free. And it, it, I was honored to have, Bruce asked me to write a chapter in his first volume. And I'm very honored that he asked me, because I'm the only Eastern Airlines pilot in that, that volume. But part of my story w- was relating about my relationship with this mamason. And I've always thought and wondered, after we cut and run, in my opinion, uh, what happened to her and her family? And I don't think the end result was probably very good for them once we cut and run
1: you know I hate to be critical of my country because I love my country but the fact of the matter is since before we were a country if there's been a failure from the top down or from the bottom up any way you want to cut it it's that we've never had a foreign policy that was worth a damn for anything you know, no matter what it was we we lacked the ability Benjamin and all the rest of our founders you know we they all always thought they knew what the hell they were doing, but the fact of the matter is, our foreign policy stinks, and it still does today. We don't have a clue of really what the Venezuelans are going through we don't have a clue of. In Iraq, Iran, and all the rest of it, in my opinion, I, and I'm not an expert on it, but if you look back in our history, you know it's it's like uh, one of the Nazis came out and said the reason we won was because we never studied history and and what they thought we were going to do, we did just the opposite because we didn't know any better, <laughs> and uh, they couldn't figure out what the hell we were doing, and and it and, and it's but it's a shame, and we. We have the ability. We just don't ever seem to be able to process it and come up with the right answer. Again, this is only my opinion, but uh, you look back and did we really ever need to be in Vietnam?
2: Well, I I think, you know, for for us, me in particular, and most of the guys who served, um, we all had Fathers, relatives, uncles who who had served in World War II. And it was the 50s. uh, It was just a very patriotic time. And I think when when Vietnam came along, um, we had a draft. And everybody had the draft hanging over their heads. If they didn't make a plan, they were going to end up getting drafted. So the plan could take many different ways, but getting a deferment by going to college or getting a deferment by signing up for a military program, and how how each one of these fellows in the books um, dealt with that, it's very interesting, because there were lots of different ways to get into the service and get into a program where you could be trained as a pilot, and I had people in those books that um, used every, every method, every way that you could possibly do it. And I think, for the most part, um, they knew they were going to have to serve. I, 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 I could divert into the Ken Burns series a little bit, which uh, was supposed to be the be-all and end-all of, um, of the Vietnam story. And, um, and And it was so disappointing to me uh, and I wrote a critique of it, which is in the introduction to the third book. But it really uh, perpetuated a lot of the negative stereotypes about Vietnam veterans, and a lot of the things that, from my experience, were just not true. So uh, it's 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 been a very uh, part of. I, I, do you need to take a break? I don't know. Yeah, we're
1: going to have to take a break. We're up, okay. up against the time. Okay.
0: located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: And we're back on America's Web Radio, and I want to throw out one more little commercial, and that is if you are a vet and starting a business, just email GM at America's Web Radio, and we'll give you two free weeks of advertising on one of, if not the largest, producing podcast radio stations in the country. And we're glad to do it, and Thank you for your service, and uh, we want to hear from you. So with that being said, we have um, we have Bruce here that's the author of, is it three books or four books? Three
2: now, and the fourth one's in process. Okay.
1: Um, and and we have his friend and my friend, Bob Moore, and uh, Bob, I want to thank you for introducing me to, to Bruce and bringing him in today. Um, how do you keep getting the, did you ever in high school or in college think you would become an author?
2: Well, I, not really. You know, it, it just, it's something that happened, and I, as Bob mentioned earlier, um, I had only intended to do one book. It was just a, a tribute to some of the fellows I flew with at the airline, a tribute to honor their service in Vietnam, and and also... a. Uh, uh, in hopes to uh, dispel some of the negative stereotypes that uh, Hollywood and the press have put out about Vietnam veterans. And these guys um, were just top notch. They were the cream of the crop of that generation from the sixties. And, and they were all volunteers and they all went willingly and, and some of them served multiple tours. Uh, several of them had brothers, uh, who served in Vietnam and, I even have one fellow who had a brother who was killed in Vietnam, and uh, it was just a, it was a tumultuous time and a very difficult time. And I think the reason that the, most of these fellows had never really talked much about Vietnam was it just wasn't popular subject of conversation when they came home, and they just put it away and, and didn't didn't talk about it. And I, I really. Uh, I used to, when I was at work, if I was with somebody who had served and I uh, could get them to talk, I would talk about things, and it was just, uh, it just how about, happened. How
1: about the first question was, where were you?
2: Where, where was I?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you were oh, talking oh. to <laughs> your...
2: Well, you know, you, you can, uh, it, it's interesting when, uh, I, I've had people say, oh, gee, we could go around with a, a video camera and talk to these guys and, and make a make a movie out of it. And I said, they wouldn't talk to you
1: you know there's most, a there's most of a them a wouldn't saying and and it's being used today more and more and and people don't even know where it came from it came from war and it came from the cavalry and from the american indians and it was an american indian that first said this and you know what i'm going to say not sure wait until you've walked a mile in my moxican's and we hear it today walk a mile in my shoes or whatever it is but it was an american indian that was talking to the Calvary. and the Calvary was you know pompous and all this kind of stuff and they didn't realize what the what the reservations and what everything else that we we were not a kind nation to our american indians and uh, that's where that saying came from and and i have this i get a I, I get a real uh, difficult position in my head with people that have never served making decisions for our military. And, uh, you know, I think, I don't think we should have a congressman that hadn't served in some shape, form, or fashion. And uh, you all, I think you'd say the same thing, if you've served you're in the at some point no matter what it is if you've served you're in the biggest fraternity or sorority ever in the world and it's and this is why you could get them to talk like you said you're not going to get one of those jerk i'm cool reporters to get anybody to talk if they hadn't been there how can they talk about it
2: well you know one of the one of the most uh, uh, rewarding things that's happened to me since the books have been out is I've been invited to uh, attend several reunions for some of the fellows that wrote their stories, and I've been to uh, several Marine Corps reunions. And you know, you you just don't get to go to those things as a as a guest. You know, you're either invited and you're part of the group, or you don't uh, you don't get to go. And one of the most incredible things that we had. There's one pilot who went to West Point um, who was a class of 1967, and he invited me to attend his 50th class reunion in 2017. And I'd never been to West Point, and it was uh, an absolutely amazing experience. He had, uh, he was part of a class that lost more lieutenants in Vietnam than any, any class at West Point, uh, going way back uh, at least to the Korean War and possibly even to World War II. So it's, it's uh I've had some wonderful experiences. I've met some really incredible people, and because of my whatever it is, the bond that I've had with the fellows who've written their stories i've, I've people have talked to me and and it's uh it's I'm just in a very unique position i i've been I've been very very I've been really blessed in a, in a lot of ways, and that's how this has all come about.
1: Well, the biggest one was that you returned.
2: Well you, you know there's a uh, Randolph Air Force Base in Texas has a monument Missing Man Monument and at the base of that monument it says we who came home must never forget
1: those who could not Amen Amen The the books volume 1 2 and 3 and then 4 is coming out same title I would assume Vietnam to Western Airlines and you can get them on
2: Well, um, we have a website, which is basically the title of the book, www.vietnam2westernairlines.com. There's a slideshow of photographs. Uh, There's excerpts from several of the stories, a chapter heading for each book that lists the stories um, that are in each book, and um, And then just a lot of more general information, and the books are available through the website or uh, through me directly, but that 's a little more difficult on the on the show here if, if people wanted to contact me directly, I can give you my email address if um, if if you 'd like
1: well I tell you what let 's hold that get a pen and paper and and uh, Bruce will come back and give you his another uh, his website or not his website but his email address so are you not with amazon or Um, jeff bezos is worth a hundred and some
2: billion dollars because he makes all the money when you sell your books on amazon we get a three dollar royalty per book that they sell on amazon and uh, the first volume is available on amazon but it's a different version it does not have the high quality paper and it's not it doesn't have color pictures but th- the first volume is available but um, he makes all the money so that's
1: uh, yep yep. you know uh, the vets that are listening or just the uh, folks that are listening in general and by the way this show will be replayed a number of times and so as you're tuning in and hearing it uh, tell the vets because I you know the ones that served in vietnam i mean this is direct relation direct relating to them and you know uh, there's what's the old saying i started saying a minute ago and i can't remember but that you had the romantic portion of the war and that you were a thousand or three thousand or five thousand feet above it do you want to do you want to tell the people how it really is
2: well, it, uh, you know, everything about war is, is about the infantryman, the, the rifleman on the ground with a rifle. And everything from the air was to support the guys on the ground. Whether it was helicopters flying medevac or flying resupply missions, whether it was the job I had flying, flying cargo into, into bases where they needed things or whether it was the uh, fighter and attack aircraft that were flying close air support missions to support the troops in contact. But everything that happened in the air was to support the guys on the ground. And the guys on the ground fought the war. Um, you know, the I mean, there were certainly losses, airplanes that were shot down and all that, but, you know, the the basic, I guess the rule of warfare, whatever it is, the... Guy on the ground with the rifle is the uh, is the guy that's fighting the war, um, and and we were all we were all there to support the guys on the ground.
1: Well, uh, what uh, there was a even in the army they for every one that's in the field it takes five to back him up or something like that. Uh, I believe that was a number back then. Uh, uh,
2: I think they said at one time when when the troop strength in Vietnam peaked out over five hundred thousand they figured there were never more than maybe between 50 and 100,000 troops who were actually in combat or actually I mean there was a lot of support involved to to get those guys out in the field and do what they did
1: and you all both know the the term policing an area Mm -hmm. we all all learned that and uh, they learned it real well in Vietnam when they started getting their anything from the law, which was a weapon, uh, used as a mortar by the Vietnamese, or anything else that we left behind, our sea our, our, uh, rations and tin cans they'd used to make bombs out of, uh, IEDs they call them down, I guess. But, um, you know, and, and like you said, uh, end of the runway, uh, would be loaded with, with landmines and you know just nothing romantic about it at all in my opinion no. but I'm, I'm eager to uh, how many calls do you get uh, in a day or emails of people vets that have read your book and, and come back and say you, you got that right or every now and then you, I know you got to get somebody that says well that's not right but
2: well you know i don't know that i would say on a daily basis what i get but i have a file at home of emails and letters i've received a lot of things from family members of the guys who wrote their stories and what i was going to say earlier is that the reason i'm only going to do 4 books is the sad reality is we're starting to lose these guys and i've already lost 6 who have written their stories have passed away hmm. And I have several others that I'm in touch with that have varying degrees of health issues are dealing with. So uh, the window of opportunity for this project is is beginning to close. And and I was just I'm just grateful that I started when I did. And I've had letters from family members from a couple of the fellows who passed away, just telling how important it was that the story is in the book for them to pass along to their their kids and their grandchildren.
1: Um, this, this is not a nice question, but how's it being received by the public?
2: Um, I haven't had any... You know, I speak mostly... When I go around... I'm, I'm doing a talk tonight at the Johns Creek uh, uh, Veterans Association, and um, it's part of their fundraising for the Wall at Heels that's um, been, been traveling around the country that they've purchased um, one of the walls. And... Uh, I always seem to talk to friendly audiences. I have not had um, really any negative um, i've I've had people ask questions that tell you right away that they're not veterans and they have no idea about things uh, military things but for the most part i've had very friendly uh i I've, I've not had a had a bad experience really out giving a speech
1: and again uh, and I generally don't ask questions like this but in your opinion, and Bob, I'd I'd appreciate your thoughts too. Like you said, this it, in, in these are history books, basically. They are, and so are they going to maintain? You think what you want them to for the next generation, or two generations, or ten generations? Are they going to be on the library sh- shelves?
2: Uh, that you know, that's something that I I would hope you know marketing. It's, it's not my area, and unfortunately, part of the deal is I have to go out on the road and try to sell these books, and it, it's not been my favorite thing because I, I really enjoy meeting with the fellows and talking to them and helping them if they need help, or uh, some I've just taken notes when we've talked and then written the stories for them and then helped them with it afterwards. But it's just uh, um, I would hope that that these Continue on. Um, my publisher tells me that this is the only oral history like this of the air war in Vietnam. That there's really nothing else like it, and it's a very, uh, very comprehensive. It covers everything.
1: We're going to take our last break, and we'll be back with Bruce Coe. Right. That's right. And uh, Bob Moore. Right after this. So they
0: listening to america's web radio your voice in the matter
1: and we're back on america's web radio and david's pick and i boy did i do a good job of picking today uh, actually bob moore i want to thank him for picking us to come and with his friend bruce Coy to uh, introduce us to his books and uh, we're going to hopefully by now you've gone and gotten a pen and paper and uh, bruce if you will Tell people how they can get your books.
2: Well, you can contact me directly uh, via email, and I will be happy to inscribe a book to you in any way you would like if you just tell me what you'd like. Um, my email address is uh, the letter B, the number two, the letter A, and then my last name, C O W E E, at AOL.com. So B2ACOE at AOL.com.
1: And you're speaking tonight at the Johns Creek?
2: Yes, um, that's
3: correct.
1: Vietnam Veterans Association, is that
3: right? It's going to be at Newtown Park uh, in Johns Creek, which is at the intersection of Old Alabama Road and Haines Bridge Road. And it's the Johns Creek Veterans Association. Uh, A lot of membership, hopefully, from the uh, American Legion Post 201 in Alpharetta. And it's going to be at the Park Place at Newtown school it's a historical building that's been remodeled uh when they created Newtown Park and you can't miss it cuz the park is right at the the corner of that intersection and uh it's a park place at Newtown I thought there was a BP gas station there There is right across the BP is right across the street from the building Yeah oh okay so they have to just go by the building and turn into the main entrance to, of Newtown Park, and and just park Is that off you know. of Haines Bridge? it's the uh, the the entrance is off of Old Alabama. Okay,
1: so yeah. if I went up and uh, I'm on Haines Bridge, going east, okay,
3: and I get to Old Alabama, make a left turn, okay, and then you go down to the first right into the park, and you'll you will have passed Park Place Building that that would be on your right. So okay, you just I'll turn into the park and go into the parking lot and uh, go in the back side of the building. And anyway, this Six is at what
2: time?
1: Six to eight this Six evening. Six to eight. Okay. I yeah. um, have a little bit of a conflict. We <clears> have <a throat> communion on uh, Wednesday nights at the uh, Northminster
3: Presbyterian Church. Uh, and uh, uh, I generally go to
1: that. But I be- anyway. I believe I mean- the
3: address is 3125 Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Okay. Yeah.
1: Alrighty, and to um, invite any and everybody out to that. And will you be selling and signing? I will. Fantastic, fantastic. You know, uh, I if I if I had my um, well, I can't say it on the air. Even I can't say it on the air. But you know that small little cap that the military used to wear? And the You all had a blue one, and mm-hmm. the Army had sort of a brownish one. I had—I think there was a term for it. Yes. But I would take it off to you right now if, if I was wearing one. I, you're doing a, a fantastic service, and there are, I don't even know how many veterans are left from Vietnam. I know we're losing 200,000 a day from World War II, but... Um, I don't know how many vets, hundreds and millions or, you know. I don't, I, know.
2: I don't, I don't have a figure. You know, the VA probably has a figure, but uh, there were so many wannabes at one time, um, and it's in the epilogue, I believe, to the first book, some of the statistics that are out there, that at, the, at that time there were 10 million who claimed to be Vietnam veterans when there were really only about 1 million who had actually served in Vietnam. And it was always a mystery to me why people wanted to claim to be veterans of a war that everybody supposedly hated. So <laughs> I never quite got that.
1: I think there's one politician that claimed he was. Yes, probably uh, more I, politicians. Well, actually, more actually. than more than one. Yeah, but uh, I know. I, th- I think I know who you're talking about. Well, I hate to sit here across from two heroes oh. and, and admit the fact that I taught Dan Quell what he learned, <laughs> and. Uh, I was just a step ahead of them, and uh, I'm not proud of it, but at least I served. I just didn't go to Vietnam. Yeah. Well, and I
2: think uh, the word hero, I, I appreciate that. You know, we, we all would say the heroes are the guys who didn't come home. And yeah. uh, and I think, you know, when you talk to the, even the POWs that, uh, that came home, and if you ever had the opportunity to interview one of those guys, it would be just, uh, I'm sure it would just be awesome what those guys went through. But uh, the real heroes, like that quote, uh, those who could not come home. But um, I, I appreciate your, your sentiment. And if, if we have, I don't know how much time we have left. Um, About
1: seven minutes.
2: Well, if you look at the dust jacket on the book on top,
1: mm-hmm.
2: that's a... Is that's that what you flew? No. no. Uh, that's, that's a picture. Uh, that's a C-130, a search and rescue airplane, Refueling a, a search-and-rescue helicopter that was headed up in a northern Laos or perhaps even into North Vietnam to try to pick up a pilot who had been shot down and was on the ground. And I spoke to a Rotary Club group, and the first question that was asked was, so that helicopter's too close to that airplane. That must have been very dangerous. And I tried to explain. See, that's when you talk about audiences. You know, I, I said... Well, you know, everything we did was probably dangerous, but it's all relative because the pilots that were on the ground, unless they had a system to refuel those helicopters, they didn't have the range to get up there to pick those guys up. And they developed that system, and the fellow flying the C-130 lives in Noonan, Georgia. uh, His name is Jim Fogg. And I was hoping he'd be able to come tonight, but it's a long drive in the traffic, and he's 82 years old, and he's uh, not going to come up, but I'm going to go see him tomorrow. And he's he's flying that C-130, and he f- had a whole tour of search and rescue, um, flying up there with the helicopters and uh, trying to pick up guys that were on the ground. And that's, I mean, th- you, you talk about courageous, heroic stuff. I mean, that was, that
1: was it. Um, Something, <laughs> <laughs> and what is that? The Huey coming in. Yeah, yep. and that that it made a sound that uh, that everybody knew. That's right. Even even if you uh, were a reservist and uh, you'd heard about it so many times, and then when you actually got to uh, hear one, it was uh, just like being able to identify an M sixteen as opposed to an AK forty seven and uh, you know it, Vietnam. I guess it'll go down in history in your books and and other books if they tell the truth, uh, or, or, or other authors tell the truth. Probably the war that changed more things than any other war ever, and uh, uh, how we fight it, and uh, how you know. Not that World War Two was any. Cream cake but it, it seemed like there was the gloves were off everything was off in Vietnam and uh, and yet we couldn't we had our one hand tied behind us the whole time our both hands but you know Bruce what have you got a favorite story out of any of these that well I,
2: I have I have several um, I have one that that um, it's going to be in the fourth book, and we just met this fellow. He lives, uh, he lives over in uh, um, Roswell, up, not Roswell of uh, the the uh, rich. Um, oh, rich, over in the, in Norcross. Yeah. Well, anyway, we met this fellow. He was a he was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and he flew two tours. And when he came home, um, he told the story of arriving in, uh, in Saigon and they put them all on a bus and there was wire mesh over the windows in the bus and he asked the driver what's, uh, what's with the wire mesh and the driver said oh it's for uh, grenades and fire bombs that they might throw at the bus as we're driving off the base out and he said oh okay so flies his two tours comes back lands at Travis Air Force Base goes through the briefing where they told him not to wear his uniform uh, after he uh, cleared, the, uh, cleared out And they got in a bus to go down to the Oakland Army Terminal to out-process. Well, there's wire mesh over the windows. And he asked the driver, what's with the wire mesh? And the guy says, "Uh, wait, you'll see the protesters down there throw stuff at the buses. And so that was, I was going to title his chapter, Welcome to Vietnam and Welcome Home. It was in the same bus with the same wire mesh over the windows. Different people throwing stuff at the bus. And just incredible! It's unbelievable, but he's a wonderful guy. Uh, another airline pilot didn't. He was hired by Western and was furloughed, and then ended up bouncing around, and ended up at Piedmont, and eventually U.S. Air. So, but um, I could go down a list of stories. There are just wonderful stories in these books, and I recommend it to anybody who's interested in the history and also just in uh, uh, just some human interest of what it was like to come of age in the 60s and have to deal with all of that
1: well with that being said we're going to have to wrap it up Uh, we've had a great guest Mr. Bruce Coleon and his books are Vietnam to Western Airlines and my friend Mr. Bob Moore has been joining him he's uh, Bruce's friend too so go out tonight to um, John's Creek and uh, listen to the story we'll um, Stay tuned for more from America's Web Radio right after this.
0: You're listening to America's
3: Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.